Einstein said this, it's cruel, isn't it, that what is most important in life reveals itself to be so only by its absence. In other words, uh, I think he's saying we often take important things for granted. Most of you are too young to remember what when Joni Mitchell uh, sang that big yellow taxi song that took away her old man. She sings, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And that's a little bit of what is going on, I think, in this passage tonight. It does seem to be a foible of human life that we take things for granted, especially those things that are part of everyday life, uh, like our family, for instance. Often we take for granted the most important things, the people we love the most, the people we are closest to, um, God himself, uh, the words that he has spoken to us. Perhaps it was because of his stupendous discoveries that Einstein had taken his family for granted. The most important thing in life, he said, and when they were gone, he grieved. It was not a sin for Einstein to be a genius and to have such passion and joy in trying to unravel the mysteries of God's extraordinary creation. He didn't take the grandeur of the universe for granted and he's, uh, the glory that he uh, attached to God because of it um, last Sunday, we kind of uh, took a page out of his book uh, that helped us look at those verses from Psalm 19 in a particular way so that we might remember to praise God also for the glory and signature that we see of him uh, every day in his creation. And especially when, especially when new discoveries come along. We should just think about them because they're not just for the physicists, they're for us to reflect on in terms of what they're saying about uh, the greatness of God. But Psalm 19 does not end at verse 6. King David was not finished with his God-inspired psalm. Uh, the best is yet to come, the most important is yet to come. Sadly, Einstein was so consumed by those astonishing physics of God's world that he didn't leave enough time to marvel at God's loving plan of salvation. There's something a bit exciting going on out there. <laughs> and um, that was a tragedy that um, he saw so much that was beautiful, but he missed out on reflecting on God's loving plan of salvation for humankind. Now, while we stand in awe of God's creation of the universe and are astonished in every way at the glory of the heavens, uh, we need to say tonight as we come to these second group of verses, there are limitations to what we might know by observing uh, what God has created. So we might say that in the first part of the psalm, the heavens do reveal God's glory, uh, but not so much about his grace. They reveal God's power but not his purpose and plan for the world. They certainly reveal God's majesty, but not much about his mercy. They reveal God's love of beauty, but not his love of sinners. They reveal God's handiwork, but not his heart work. So today it is my hope and prayer that you will find the second part of Psalm 19 to be a, a wonderful antidote to the very human problem of taking God's word for granted. It's part of my life doing that very much. So 
Um, I need to listen to this message uh, as I prepared it, I did. Considering what Psalm 19 says about God's word, you wouldn't think that we would be so casual about it. Why would we neglect that which is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold, able to refresh our very souls, able to make us wise, to bring joy into our hearts and light into our eyes? Why would we treat ourselves so badly as to deny ourselves these beautiful life-enriching things? And God's word is not just to bring us to faith in the Lord. It is to sustain us throughout our life. I'm sure there are times when we all share a sense of despair about our world. The daily news items which reveal the downside of our world, it can be a pretty evil place, can't it? Uh, a very confused, uh, sometimes ignorant place, a hateful place, and a place where we see a lot of human despair. I don't know if you've ever daydreamed, I certainly have, and thought to myself, wouldn't it be wonderful if we just had such a Christian statesman, a bit of a, a super-duper Billy Graham, or somebody who could get a forum where the whole world was listening and, and say to them something like this, um, and this is just fiction, I suppose, but I put this little charter together uh, in this uh, dream of what, it would be great for our world if this could happen and this great person could stand up and say that I have here a charter that I would like to commend to the people of the world. Let me tell you about it and what it will do. It is designed for the well-being of all humankind, every race, every tribe and every language. Firstly, it is completely trustworthy and just. It is right and true. It is radiant in that it shines forth hope into the life of every person. It will endure for all ages to come. I'm not asking you to swallow a bitter pill. It is sweeter than honey, even honey fresh from the honeycomb. It is more precious than gold, and yet it is free to every person on the planet. It has power to refresh a person's very soul and it will make wise the simple. It will deliver gladness and joy into human hearts and it will bring light and life into people's eyes. Well, these words are 3,000 years old and they come from God, the creator of the world and the people in it. Um, I wonder how many would recognize that charter as coming from a psalm in the Old Testament. This charter is the Judeo-Christian heritage to the world. Without doubt, it is God's gracious gift to the nations. Sadly, I think we have to say that for the most part, the nations either don't know about it, they don't believe it to be true, or they take it for granted. And it is tragic for the world at large that something potentially so life-enriching, so valuable, so unifying, for people in the world today, so valuable, so freely available to all mankind um, that is not known. Either it's not known or it is rejected or it is just taken for granted. 
I just uh, was going over this sermon and injected another little bit into it here. I did cut some out, so I don't think it'll go for too long. But I thought, uh, I don't know whether a lot of you young people are sort of into the same things I'm into, but um, I don't know whether you've got personal views about political correctness and identity politics. Uh, and I just realised over the weekend that uh, politics or political is mentioned in both of those modern movements. Uh, and I think, think that suggests to us that our, you know, this political aspect of it means we are searching for uh, improved ideologies to make life better for people, make the world a better place. My perspective is simply this, that we seem to be dividing people into an ever-increasing number of different identity groups. And I don't think this is really a formula for promoting the equality and the unity of all human beings. So folks, my question is, what is the, what is the Judeo-Christian doctrine that promotes the unity and equality of all people in the world? If you start reading the Bible from page one, you don't have to wait long before you get the answer. First book of the Bible, Genesis, first chapter, verses 26 and 27, says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So folks, how about that for an identity? that is common to every human being on the planet and makes us equal in the eyes of God. How about that for an identity which has the power to unite us instead of all these different identities that are emerging which I think have the power to divide us. But here's my point. In the thousands of articles written in newspapers and the like over the last several years, how many have mentioned verse 27 from Genesis chapter 1. Not many. Psalm 19 tells us in the most beautiful and powerful way possible that God's word tells us what we need to know in order to live with hope and joy, with wisdom and love, in peace and harmony with each other. It is not very wise to jettison God's timeless truth. There it is in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, a wonderful, timeless truth that we are all imago Dei, as the Latin says, in the image of God and united by that wonderful truth. God's word in Psalm 19 is more precious than gold and I think that truth is a precious truth. In Psalm 19... We are told that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we go looking in lots of different places to find a light to our path. So we ought not to neglect God's word. And verse 9 of Psalm 19 tells us that God's word is enduring and firm. It will remain and continue down through the ages as God's eternal blessing to mankind. And so it has. But there are a few cynics. Uh, back in the 18th century, uh, a Scottish philosopher named David Hume said, the Bible will soon be looked upon as a discredited relic. 
Shortly after his death, his house became the headquarters of the Edinburgh Bible Society. Uh, that lesson wasn't good enough for Voltaire over in France, the French philosopher. Um, Voltaire predicted that the Bible would be extinct by 1850, and soon after his death, his house and his printing press in Geneva were taken over by the Swiss Bible Society. So what does that say about philosophers? They're not all bad, um, but some of them, you know, sort of head in the atheist direction. But way back in the 1600s, a gentleman named Robert Boyle, a very strong Christian man described by some scientists as the father of modern chemistry, he talked about Psalm 19, uh, describing it as God's two books. Uh, book one is... God's revelation through his creation and book two, God's revelation through his word. Quite a helpful way to uh, look at Psalm number 19. It's a big picture Psalm 19, uh, a simple progression from God's first book which reveals God's eternal power and his divine nature. Romans 1 tells us that and verses 7 to 10, God's second book in which God reveals himself by speaking to his people through the prophets in the Old Testament, through Jesus Christ his son and his apostles in the New Testament. And it is in these words that we progressively learn that God is much more than just a majestic creator. He is our heavenly father who loves the people he has made and has in his mind a plan of such amazing grace as to save sinful people through the redeeming work of his only beloved son, Jesus Christ. Now, the psalm comes to an end by David allowing the light to shine on his own life a bit. And these final four verses are in the context of all these perfections of the word of God and you can almost see that David has been reflecting on his own words that the word of God is pure and it is right and it is just and it is holy and it is good and it is radiance it shines light and but all of those things um, reveal something of the downside of human beings don't they they show our own faults and David looks inwardly to his own failings in Psalm 19 verses 11 to 14. And um, as we see them having their effect on David, I want us tonight to let them have a bit of an effect on us as well as they should. Firstly, David acknowledges in verses 11 and 12 that God's words to his people are at one and the same time a warning so it's not just in praise of the beauty of God's word and all it will do, but he sees now uh, himself in a different light. It's a warning and it is a source of great reward, both of those things. Knowing himself only too well and fully aware of his own insensitivity to the, puri uh, the purity and holiness of God, David asks forgiveness for his hidden faults. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't too often go looking for my hidden faults. There are many obvious ones that are not so hidden, and that's quite sufficient for me 
to say I'm sorry for from time to time. But David has been looking for his hidden faults, asking the question, does anyone really discern a fraction of their own errors and shortcomings before the righteous Lord? This prayer reveals a good degree, I think, of self-awareness in David and challenges all of us to also be self-aware. It requires a high level of honesty to go digging for our own failures that are not readily apparent to ourselves. Sometimes they're more apparent to others around us, aren't they? So verse 12 is a definite challenge to each of us to regularly engage in self-examination. And as an encouragement for us to do some work in this area, we are reminded that we will not be the poorer for some honest inspection of our own hearts because in living in accordance with God's word, there is great reward. Our souls will be refreshed. Uh, We will gain wisdom. We will have more joy in our hearts and we will have a sparkle in our eyes, smiling eyes that come from a clear conscience. Our Christian life and witness is empowered, I believe, by a clear conscience and I believe it is hindered when we are troubled by things that we haven't brought before the Lord. And then in verse 13, David turns quickly uh, to that darker aspect of life uh, and he prays, keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. David was no stranger to willful sins. We know the adultery with Bathsheba and the consequent manslaughter of Uriah. They were shocking things that he did wrong. We need only to read Psalm 51 to understand how deeply they cut into David's heart. He cried out to God, asking God not to take the Holy Spirit from him not to give him what he deserved. The Hebrew worship, you see, offered no sacrifice for David to go to the temple, um, no sacrifice that he could take up to the altar to atone for such sins. This was called in the Old Testament sinning with a high hand. And this uh, this left a person with only one option, no guarantee of forgiveness, just to beg for God's mercy. And such mercy was not guaranteed in the Old Testament promises, not even for the king. So David knew in verse 13 that he could only be blameless uh, before God if he remained innocent of such high-handed, deliberate, willful sins. And even though we're belonging now to the New Testament age, the age of Jesus Christ, our Saviour, the age when we know more fully the depths of God's forgiveness and mercy that is available to us in Jesus. Nevertheless, I think we must join David in his prayer in verse 13, keep us from willful sins, may they not rule over our lives. God's great mercy in Christ is never intended to give us a license to sin, especially willful, deliberate, premeditated sin. Such sin is still sinning with a high hand and is not where we as Christians want to find ourselves. 
Certainly such sin can be forgiven and it can be forgiven over and over again. But it is dangerous and presumptuous for believers to go there and stay there. Work hard at getting out of that trap. So as we leave this psalm of great beauty and great lessons for us, let's take to heart three following lessons. Number one, let us not take for granted the wonder and grandeur of God's creation. Let us be aware of God's signature in his world and praise him for it. Look for it and find it and praise him for it every day. Let us not take, secondly, for granted the huge blessing that it is to be in possession of his divine word, his life-giving word, his word which will refresh our very souls and bring joy to our hearts. And thirdly, let us not take for granted that it is in Christ alone that we are forgiven and free and bound for glory in the kingdom of heaven. So... Let's David minister to us in the final words that he spoke in this great psalm, verse 14, when he said, So may all the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen.